Welcome to the Future Cued Podcast. I'm Australian food futurist Tony Hunter, and in these podcasts I talk to leading industry figures about how new food technologies will influence the future of food. Hi everyone, it's Tony Hunter, Futurist for Food here, and today I'm fortunate enough to have Bi Chen Yang with me from BGI, and the subject we're going to talk about today is genomics. Hi Bi Chen, how are you? I'm good, Tony, thank you. Tell me a little bit about yourself and how you came to work for BGI. Yeah, so I started in biotechnology for both my bachelor and my PhD, and I studied ryegrass for my PhD program in University of Birmingham in UK. So I'm quite um, passionate and interested in genomics subjects. So that's why um, when an opportunity came up, that I got in touch with uh, BGI when um, it's just set up its office in Shenzhen. Um, I learned about history and uh, uh, talked with the founder of BGI. So the organization is very passionate and also has a lot of um, advanced technologies and visions in bringing genomics technology to uh, more communities and societies. So that's why I decided to join BGI after I got my PhD. Okay, well, tell me a little bit about uh, BGI, where the company started and what its focus is. So BGI started in 1999 in China, in Beijing, for the purpose of participating in the Human Genome Project. So BGI represented China to be a partner in the International Human Genome Project. And uh, since then, BGI has focused on developing technologies and uh, um, solutions and tools for bringing genomics technology into uh, different areas, um, including human health, agriculture, environment conservation, uh, personalized health. So currently, BGI's focus is on bringing more affordable and accessible genomics technologies to provide more benefits to the whole human society. I think that's the thing is that the cost of sequencing a human genome, I suppose we should get a little bit of exactly what we mean by genomics, but um, that has come down a lot in recent years, hasn't it? Yes, definitely. So if you imagine that when the first human genome was sequenced in um, 1990s, finished in 2000, it cost about 3 billion US dollars to sequence just one human genome. And nowadays it's less than 1,000 US dollars. That's a massive drop, isn't it? Yeah. It was, as you point out, that really makes uh, DNA sequencing and the interpretation of the human genome within the reach of a lot more people than would ever have been thought possible back in the, the 80s and 90s. Yeah, definitely. So tell us a little bit about when we say genomics, what do we actually mean by genomics? If you imagine a human is a computer, then genomics is a program. So it encodes all the um, information that is required to make your whole system function. And it encodes the both good and sometimes it can um, have some mistakes in the program, which will lead to some, um, you know, misfunctions in the human system, which can cause certain disease or um, certain, uh, you know, problems. And I think there's a difference too between 
the genomic analysis or the whole genomic sequencing and whole exome sequencing. Can you just tell us a little bit about the difference between the two? Yes, sure. So we talk about whole exome sequencing. It mainly sequences the, all the expressed or coded genes. So most of the coded genes have functions. So when we sequence the whole exome, it can give you information on the most expressed genes, which are largely have information on the possible results when the, those certain genes have some mutation. And we also know that the exome only comprises about 1% of the genome. So most of our genome are in, also encoded in, we call it the non-coding regions. And for whole genome sequencing, it can give you the whole footprint of the expressed genes and the non-expressed genes. And we also now understand that a lot of the information and uh, possible functions that lead to certain symptoms and diseases are actually embedded in the non-expressed genes. Those regions will control the expressions and may lead to some epigenetic um, functions for certain um, symptoms. So that's why to understand the whole genome sequences will give us the whole picture of the most important information. Some people say that you know it's not worth doing whole genome sequencing and that you should just do whole exome sequencing, partly because of the costs involved. What's your view of whether you should do one or the other and how the costs of the two are comparing at the moment? I think for some very uh, specific analysis that you want to look into certain genes, for example, if you, if you already know some of the cancer-related genes and you want to identify whether you have mutations in those genes, you have a very clear target then exome sequencing is more cost-effective and uh, possibly more targeted. But if you don't understand some of the, the reasons, like you want to get a clear answer or get a clear picture of the uh, functional pathways or the mechanisms of certain complex disease, then you will need to have the more comprehensive information to get the whole genome to look, look into all the possible mutations and the possible interactions between genes to give you the more powerful information and the data set to uh, find the result. And currently there are definitely different prices between the whole exome and the whole genome. So for whole exome possibly is about around um, about three hundred, maybe three to four hundred dollars, while the whole genome would still be around um, possibly one thousand US dollars. So there is a time difference. So for like different purpose of the testing, it's best for the people to choose which kind of testing is more suitable um, for the purpose. So if we are looking at something specific like looking for a specific disease or looking for some specific characteristics in the genome of the exome would be the way to go. But obviously you can't go back later on and look for something else because you've only sequenced a certain part. So if we wanted to say do someone's um, whole genome now and in five years time we discovered that hey there's something at a certain locus that we think 
makes a difference. If you've done the whole genome sequencing, you can go back and look at it, correct? But if you've just done the exome and it doesn't include that particular part, then you're gone. Yes, that's correct. So that's why when we think that maybe in the next five to 10 years, the sequencing cost will further drop down, it will be more affordable to have everyone just to get the information of their whole genome. So they can have this kind of data set available and they can do further analysis and mining when we have more powerful analysis tools and also when we have more um, larger data set to give us more precise analysis results. Once you've got the data on the composition of the genome, it's then the computational power that's required that takes more of the time than anything else. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. So you can imagine like for each whole genome, we have um, 30 billion um, genetic codes. Mm. So, and when you sequence a whole genome, you, can, you, you, you are not just sequencing once, you have to sequence at least 10 times or even more. So it requires a lot of the computing power to provide analysis. And also, when we do the comparison, we are not just compare one genome to another. We are comparing one genome to a whole data set, which might include tens of thousands or in the future, maybe millions of human genomes. So that requires definitely a very powerful, high performance computing capability. Because I believe BGI has several supercomputers that do nothing but sequence the <laughs> analyze the sequencing data you guys have got. Yes, so we do have several high performance computing centers. The largest one is located in our headquarters in Shenzhen, where we store all the um, genetics information we produced and also we perform um, a lot of the analysis. So the Looking at the, the human genome, people tend to think, or it used to be thought years ago, once you've got your genes, that's it. That's what you are, that's what you're going to be. But obviously we're learning now that that genome is modifiable by people's lifestyles, by their food, their diet, and that would be the epigenetics of a person compared to the genome. Yes, that's correct. So, as you said, that when, we, when we're born, we definitely carry a set of the genomes. That's, if you can uh, think that as a baseline of your, everyone's genome. But during the life, life cycle, there are a lot of other external factors that will change the expression of your genome, including like uh, lifestyle, um, environment, and uh, diet, or, you know, a, like, psychological pressure, a lot of other effects will influence. So when you do the genome sequencing, do you sequence the epigenetic part of the genome as well? Can you tell whether there have been modifications epigenetically to the genome or is it just analysis of the base genome itself? So when we sequence the whole genome, we don't look at the um, epigenome because what we want to have is like the, the baseline or the, uh, yeah, the very fun fundamental information. And uh, when we, for example, when we want to look into a particular change in the, in the genome, which lead to the change in your health um, conditions or um, lead to some changes in your personal profile, that's when we want to look specifically into the influences of the epigenetics. 
So is it possible to sequence or look at the epigenetic changes in the genome through the sequencing that you do, or do you have to separately sequence a particular part looking for the epigenetic effects? So that's a different uh, technology that, uh, um, that we have to use to sequence the epigenetics profile of the genome. Because I think that's a whole new field of genomics coming out is the nutri-epigenetics, looking at how people's uh, lifestyle and also their, particularly their nutrition, affects the expression of their genes. I mean, I think there's a few fairly famous studies in there. I think the, what, the, the Dutch hunger winter study that was done, just a little bit about that and how that's uh, demonstrated uh, epigenetics. Yeah, sure. So that's an interesting study that uh, um, the, the researchers looking to the population which suffered the, uh, the, the hunger winter and they also look into the genetic components of their offspring to see whether the effects of um, epigenetics may inherit it in the future population. And interestingly, they found that there is actually a um, fingerprinting effects of those epigenetic change that carried out in the future generations. So those generations may be more prone to carry some met metabolomic diseases like to have diabetes or some other um, metabolomic disorders because their you know, parents or their um, older generations has some genetic changes caused by the hunger period. I think what we're looking at there is that was a really good demonstration of the fact that there are environmental influences not only on um, an individual generation but subsequent generations as well is actually transferable that the epigenetics don't reset with each new generation actually carried forward from the, the parents into the children the grandchildren. Yes, definitely. The other um, interesting area that's coming up, of course, as we're human beings, we not only have our own genome, but we have the microbiome there as well. And so then we start to look at how the microbiome interacts with the human genome and the effects that that can have um, as an epigenetic effect as well. What's the state of um, play on that one at the moment? Yes, so if you think we have our own set of genome and actually we carry a second set of genome, that's our gut microbiota. So, and the uh, gut microbiome actually is probably will give a very significant percentage of influences on our own health. Uh, for example, the gut microbiome actually contains about one, 100 times more genes compared with our own genome. So, and also, uh, there are a lot of studies carried out in the area of like diabetes, some metabolomic disease, the obesity, and even related with some mental health. There are all a lot of discoveries in the recent years that we found the linkage between the components of our microbiome with a certain disease. And that's the thing that obviously we start now working further back. The microbiome is influenced by the foods that we eat. So if we look at the foods that we eat influencing the microbiome, which are influencing our own human genome and the epigenetics of a particular individual, then that makes food, what we eat, a very, very important part of our genetic expression as well. And are there any particular areas there you can think of that 
demonstrate or been shown to demonstrate some effect between food and the epigenetic effects on the genome. Yeah, certainly. So there have been a lot of studies on on the providing different diets and to look at the different diets may lead to the change of the composition in the human gut、uh, microbiome. And uh,、um, there have been some results showing that if you provide, for example, high fiber type of diet, it will lead to the more diverse. Composition of the gut microbiome, which is、uh, more preferable for providing a healthier gut environment. There have been a few studies that look into particular genes, which may have、um, effects on the possibilities on, for example, the the metabolism of fat and carbohydrates. So some people may have higher possibility to、uh, metabolize fat. And also, some people may have more capabilities to、uh, metabolize、uh, carbohydrate. And also, there are genes have functions to control the blood、um, blood sugar、uh, blood sugar level. So some people will have more capabilities to balance their、um, blood sugar if they consume more a higher sugar contained food. And、uh, maybe some more. Kind of common example is the ability to digest lactose. You know, a lot of the Asian population are lactose intolerance. I think that's probably the more observable or more common example that we probably occur that、uh, showcase the、uh, linkage between a certain、uh, genetic components with the possibility to digest or you know to to select the certain diet. So you're thinking that lactose intolerance is partly the result of the genome, but also that that's the microbiome as well. Is that what you're saying? Or I think the majority、uh, reason is on the genome. Because I think there's a few studies, as you say, that have come out, and I think that one with the fiber, the high fiber diet, is the short chain fatty acids, and that can protect against methylation of the, the genome. Yes, so the、um, ability to digest the,、uh, the the high fiber that uh, uh, the certain genes will control the、um, the digestibility of high fiber, which may lead to、um, the enriched environment that can be in a favor of、uh, accumulating more diverse bacteria component in the gut. So it will lead to more, you know,、uh, kind of、uh, beneficial bacteria, and、uh, the possibility to provide a healthier components and to be beneficial to the human's health. So when we have all this data、um, on the human genome and we understand some of the the epigenetic effects, from what I gather, if we can reverse to some extent the inherited epigenetic effects. Is that something that you think in the future that we will be able to hone in on and focus on, and then look at some sort of diet that will help to reverse some of those epigenetic effects? I think the way to look forward is more to look into personalized nutrition or personalized、uh, food, the the direction. So because it is. Very difficult to us、uh, for us to control the external factors because we live in a very ever-changing environment. So it's very hard to, for us to prevent the effect of epigenetics. 
but with the tour of genomics and uh, the diverse uh, you know food resource and uh, uh, diverse uh, different supplements or different um, health management tools we have so it is possible to us for us to find a more personalized solutions or guidelines or programs that can help us to identify for example which food is more suitable for individual person depending on the personal genome profile and uh, what kind of for example what kind of nutritions or uh, micro um, uh, components or supplements that the person is need, needed and also what kind of lifestyle is more suitable for this person um, and in all the nutrition is very systematic subject it's not just food it's not just lifestyle I think it's a combination of all the factors together so when we have the we have the human genome we have that sequenced and now we need to look at how reliably can we predict things. People seem to think you look at the genome and go, aha, this person shouldn't eat this, this person shouldn't eat that, and it's somehow quite definitive. Um, how do you see that? How definitive can we be to say to someone, you're going to get this, or you're not going to get that, or you should eat this or should eat that? Is it definitive or probabilistic? I think... Currently, we are still at the age to accumulate more scientific knowledge. So, for example, there are some um, studies which can give us more definitive answers, like the lactose intolerance and uh, maybe some other uh, metabolomic diseases like PKU. We know that if a person contains certain genetic mutations related with those genes, then it um, has very high uh, possibilities or almost a definite, uh, definite to contain some of the intolerance to certain diet so we know how to pres prescribe the more suitable dietary for those persons but currently we, we do not have the definite answers or we do not have the definite knowledge we are still accumulating more data from everywhere from different population to give us a, a power to provide a more accurate kind of uh, predictions, the certain uh, interconnections between genes and the um, the phenotype. So, for example, the the some several of the genes we mentioned before related with um, the ability to digest fat or carbohydrate. For those genes, there's it's still the probability at this stage. So we don't have, uh, it cannot be used as a diagnostics or, you know, as to use as a clinical uh, kind of testing. Um, it's, it's still more at the stage as a general health management and uh, recommendations. I suppose the thing is that if you tell someone there's an 80% chance that this is going to do you harm, if that were me, I'd be going... 80% sounds like I should uh, do the right thing and not indulge in that particular product or an 80% chance of something still pretty um, good guideline as to how you should manage your lifestyle. Yeah, sure. But there's uh, also another interesting study that um, uh, I think a group of UK researchers actually did a survey to the general public with like people with obesity and uh, um, the other group of people. So it turns out that even if you provide uh, genetic information to those people, they still tend to 
you know, continue with their lifestyle. And it seems that genomics actually didn't provide, um, you know, kind of a strong influence on the kind of a tendency for those people to go on their own path. So I think there would need to be more kind of a practices for the genomics technology to be more kind of appliable to the general public. And I think that is quite culturally related too. I mean, throughout Asia, nutraceuticals have always been part of the culture. It's food as medicine in particularly Asian populations, so on, has, is taken for granted. Some of it, I think, is old wives' tales. Some of it now, the more science we look at and say, well, actually, there's something in there. But certainly the Western perspective is food is food, it's fuel. Medicine is medicine. And that now bringing those two together, particularly for people accustomed to a Western diet, is going to be the challenge. And demonstrating that, hey, if we tell you this and you do this, then your lifestyle is going to be better is probably going to take a lot longer for some cultures than for others. Yes, yes, I agree on that. But I think, as you pointed out earlier, Bicheng, the personalised nutrition is certainly going to be the future. And looking at this, if we can get the um, human genome in there, epigenetics, the microbiome, and all those linkages in there, if we can point people to foods that will benefit them and their lifestyle and their health, then that's got to be a good thing. At the moment, we're very reactive in medicine. It's wait until you get a disease, then we'll cure it for you. Whereas what we're looking at now is proactive. So we can predict, we can give people probabilities. And when they start realizing that, then hopefully they'll then start making some better choices. And when it's easily accessible, if it's just as easy for me to get the high fiber one as the low fiber one, and you've told me that my genome says I should be eating a lot, a lot more fiber than I do, well, I can get it. When I can get that personalized delivery of that food, I think that's possibly when things will change as well. Mm, yeah, definitely. I think totally agree that we should spend more resource in proactively preventing the, um, you know, we, we, we're getting ill, we, we get diseases, uh, rather than to spend more uh, resource um, during the, the last 20% of our lifetime uh, curing those diseases. The earlier you get the, the disease diagnosed, the cheaper it is to actually treat. Yeah. So if we can get that before it even manifests itself at all, then that surely has to be the cheapest way. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things I was reading something on, on BGI, that's saying if we sequence somebody's genome and we tell them what their susceptibilities are and they make the correct choices, then it's going to improve human health generally and our health costs should come down dramatically. So I think that's a great goal. And I think also from the point of view, if we can then look at this personalised nutrition, at the moment we're in very much, we have huge factories, it makes everything the same for everybody. It doesn't matter what our genome is, doesn't matter about the epigenetic effects, we all get the same loaf of bread. Now, when we come to the point of view where we can get a different loaf of bread and a different product each, and we can link that back to the genome. And if, as you say, getting your genome sequenced is like, yeah, I just get that done once a year and it costs me 50 or 100 bucks, mm -hmm. and you can then trace what's happening, mm -hmm. then we're going to have a huge effect on, on human health. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is, 
how many startups do you think um, we could ge- generate from mm. all this sort of data that's coming up? Yeah, I think that would be massive. And we already see like um, a huge number of startups in the health, um, you know, the health medicine areas. And for the food industry, I think the potential is huge because the food is what we need every day. We need the, right, we need the fuels to keep up moving. So, and also in different areas, you know, we, we know that currently probiotics is a very hit topic. There already been a lot of the startups in pro, probiotics areas that, um, based on the, the most recent development in the gut, uh, gut microbiome technologies. And uh, like one example is a startup in Brisbane that we, we both met at event that provide a microbiome sequencing. So this can lead to a lot of the potential, including like the disease treatment, um, personalized food or probiotics, and uh, a lot of the other personalized dietary or development of new food or even new um, species, like uh, to be more suitable for a poten- potential group of people. I think it's interesting, isn't it, that if you tell someone you have a predisposition to cancers or a disease, don't do this, they will stop doing it tomorrow, today. You tell me today I shouldn't do this because I've got a high propensity for cancer, I'll stop doing it. But we tell people, don't do that because it's going to have an effect on your lifestyle and later on you're going, you might get ill. People just seem to go, oh, yeah, I'll just have that burger anyway or I'll just eat this or that in any case. And I think changing people's view on that and getting to that case where we see food mm. as medicine as well as just fuel is going to be the, the major the major change that we need to make. And just so if we can then deliver that easily and simply, because if it's, as we know, if you make something too hard, people just won't do it. If it's really, really easy to do and really easy to follow, then we'll get people to do it and we'll make those massive changes in health. Mm. And as you say, it's interesting that what we're seeing out of the genomics currently in all the research is everything in the health field. Mm. I can't see much coming out in nutri-epigenetic fields. We've got probiotics, but they're more focused on give you a good microbiome rather than give you a good microbiome because then they'll produce short-chain fatty acids, then they'll prevent methylation, then you will be healthier and be less um, susceptible to various diseases. I think we've yet to see that whole chain come together. We've got some silos there and linking all those silos together is really where the future is going to be Mm. for human health and that getting the right food to the right people. Yes, definitely. So it's a definitely a long process. I think we also should look into the like the chains that you just mentioned from the source of the food origin of the food, for example, the the meat or the dietary that we consume, whether they contain the right nutrition to the to a specific person. I think it's also something that can be achieved through the future technology. So we already have a development in synthetic biology where the scientists can actually assemble a new genome, you know, based on the functions that you want to achieve through this genome. So there's an international group of scientists already 
synthesized yeast genome. Mm-hmm. So it has a great potential in, for example, the food industry, in the, uh, the beauty industry, in like environment protection. So you can engineer the yeast gen- genome to contain the functions that you prefer. So the yeast can be used to generate, for example, for um, food fermentation, for develop more personalized beauty products, or to be able to, um, you know, break down some uh, the um, food pollution or food pathogen. So there are a lot of potential kind of application areas for this new technology. We've just briefly touched on it there. What do you see as the, the big future for genomics? We've obviously got, yes, let's get everybody's genome and sequence the whole genome of the entire planet and then crunch it with some super quantum computer, you know, which will only take seconds instead of days to do these things. What do you think's coming up for genomics? I think the biggest potential for genomics, the ultimate goal for genomics is to provide the knowledge for each individual so everyone can live a long and healthier life. And uh, um, through this process, so we can have the power of, of knowledge that we know our own genetic components. We have better kind of a control of our health, of our future. And also we have the power to make more contribution to the society. We can use our personal genome to be able to um, contribute to the research society to enable them to develop more applications and to find more discoveries that uh, every person can be a part of this process. And uh, I think also we should also consider that it's we are still at the early stage of you know the genomics technology and uh, there are limitations that these technologies are not uh, like science fictions that it will uh, lead to the definite answer or give you result overnight. So it still has a long process to make uh, the genomics technologies more accept- accepted, t- acceptable and uh, accessible to the general public. We still have a very huge effort need to put into the education to educate more professionals and also general public about genomics. The legislation is part of the thing as well. I mean, you have a look around, we have these people like Ancestry.com and all these other people gathering huge amounts of data with the ability to pretty well use it for anything they like. And I think like a lot of technologies, whether it be food or anything else, legislation and government understanding lags so far behind Mm. technology that that's going to be one of the things too is ensuring how this data is used legislatively so that people are protected and I think that's one thing that's running way behind and is potentially a, a barrier to being able to accumulate the data to actually get the best outcome from that accumulation of data. Yes, certainly. And also there are new technologies, like uh, there are groups in science field to develop the blockchain technology, which can you know, help to solve the uh, ownership problem of every single person's genomics data. So it can provide a more transparent process to make sure you know where your data is 
is going and uh, who you want to share your data and how you want to um, you know make your data useful I think that's uh, future directions for for the genomics industry the, the way uh, forward that to um, make more solutions and uh, more um, applications based on uh, the personal genome era because as we're saying who owns if you have your genome sequenced who owns the data and so it thinks like that and then if that contains some bad news in Australia you can be refused life insurance mm, yeah. you can't be health insurance is different but life insurance and legislations are different around the world yeah. and so for some people you know they look at it and say well I'd love to get my genome sequenced but what's the downside what's the risk to me if I then have to try and get life insurance and then I have to say I've got I've had my genome sequenced and the life insurance company gets that data then how do we do that? Because we're going to find that some people are more susceptible to some diseases than others. Yeah. Is it then acceptable to charge them more or not? Mm. And if we tell them they should be eating high fibre and they don't, well, can we say, well, you knew that? So, so mm. I think there's a, there's a lot of legislation, a lot of legal, moral and ethical questions still around all the genomics. It shouldn't stop us by any stretch of the imagination, but there's yeah. a lot of things you point out that we need to do to... Yeah make sure that where data gets used in the right way that people are comfortable with it understand what's being what's being done with that mm -hmm. and that it can help them to lead a healthier lifestyle if we can get them to actually listen to what people like yourself and bgi mm -hmm. are telling them mm -hmm. and then we can provide the answers to that in that personalized nutrition side of things then i think i would say we've got that real opportunity to make a difference to people's lifestyle and health costs are enormous. I mean, mm. we in Australia, was it two and a half, three percent mm. of our salary goes to Medicare? Yeah, and that's still barely enough. Then people have private health insurance on top of that. Mm. So you know, is his private health insurance under under threat in the in the future? Mm. Mm. That's an interesting one. That's the thing. A lot of these companies don't look to the future and say, well, if this happens and if people are healthier. Is the market for private health insurance going to going to suffer? Yeah, sure. Mm. Um, they, they wouldn't agree. But I think that'd be a very, very good thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's that's where genomics would be very useful. You know, to provide the knowledge everyone needs, and to save the you know medical health expenses at the end. I think so. I think that's absolutely great. Well, I think that's a good note for us to stop on, Bichen. I think we've we've covered a lot of ground there. And I think one thing that's definitely there is, as you pointed out, we're only barely in the infancy of what's happening with, with genomics at the moment, and we're only going to find out more and more things, and that should lead to better and better outcomes for people, and more and more opportunities, I say, for all those startups in nutri-epigenetics. So let's hope we start seeing uh, rounds of those coming over the next few years. So thanks again, Bicheng. Thanks for your time. Much appreciated. Thank you, Tony. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to this podcast and join me next time for more exciting insights into the future of food.